Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening. This is episode 19 of the Fierce Fiduciary Podcast. I'm Brian Beasley, and with me is Dan Alberth. Good morning, Dan. Good morning, Brian. Standard housekeeping, nothing in this episode or any episode of the Fierce Fiduciary Podcast should be deemed personal financial planning advice or personal investment advice. For that, we recommend you find properly registered and licensed help of your own. In our Facebook groups that we participate in, there are some common questions. The largest group is called Investing for Beginners. And in that group, there's about 70,000 members. You can imagine there's a lot of frequently asked questions there. And one of the most common questions is, how do I get started? It's a broad question. You usually have to ask lots of things. And you can imagine with 70,000 people, they're all going to chime in with different answers. And there's people out there trading. There's people doing uh, trading options, trading stocks, day trading, looking at penny stocks, small. You're trying to go for the short-term home run hit. What we're going to focus on is something different today. We're focusing on big rocks first. We're going to focus on the basics of building an investment portfolio. We're focused on long-term. So we're talking about the foundation of somebody's investment plan. That's what we're talking about here. The first thing to consider when building an investment portfolio is understanding risk. And risk comes... Rather, risk needs to be measured in three different ways, and I'll go into those a little bit. Risk capacity needs to be measured. And what risk capacity is, is that's considering all the things surrounding your financial situation. It's kind of like saying, hey, how much risk do I need or to take, or how much risk can my portfolio take and reach my financial goals? It could be the minimum risk you can take to meet your goals. It could be the maximum risk you need to take your goals. But you need to understand the capacity of your portfolio, of your situation. So that's going to take into into account a lot of moving parts, like how much are you contributing on a regular basis? What's the mixture of things you have in the portfolio, that kind of thing. But it's important to know what's the risk capacity of your situation. The second thing you need to look at and measure is risk tolerance. Risk tolerance is about your own preferences and feelings. It's about how you handle seeing the ups and downs that are going to happen along your investment journey on a month-to-month basis, say, as your statements arrive in the in the email or in mail or as you check your, your app online and you're seeing the numbers go up and down on a regular basis. How do you handle that? How much of that can you feel comfortable with? Um, or how much do you need to see in order to feel comfortable? But the other thing you need to measure is you need to measure the actual risk of the portfolio itself. And as we're defining it, we're going to define risk of a portfolio as how much downside volatility is probable with your portfolio. If you know all three of those things, if you know the risk capacity, and if you know your risk tolerance, and you can make your portfolio match those two, then you're on the on your way, foundationally anyway, you're on your way to making your portfolio match your goals, match you, and give yourself a high probability of achieving those goals. So it's important to measure those risks. It's important to measure the precision of your risk. In the past, uh, back in the day, we used to use questionnaires that were very subjective. They asked questions, hey, how aggressive are you? How conservative are you? And they would ask questions about your how long you've been investing. And they would be all of this information that would just be kind of general knowledge. Yeah, like, if this happened, what would you do? Would you do A, B, C, or D? Would you sell out? Would you buy more? Would you stay the same? What do you think you would do? And the truth is people didn't know. Yeah. And when you even ask a question about aggressive, am I aggressive? Am I conservative? My definition of aggressive may be very different than somebody else's. And we found that to be true. Absolutely. Once we started getting very precise about measuring risk, we found that to be 100% true. And a few years ago, an excellent example of this is when we were sitting down offering up a questionnaire to a, a new client who was just starting out. He says, hey, I'm a real conservative guy. But as he took our questionnaire, he measured for us. We use a a measuring system, a 
a very objective mes- measuring system where from one to 99, where a one is a very conservative person, a 99 is very aggressive. And as we were instituting this questionnaire to him, he came back at about an 85. On Pretty aggressive. Very aggressive. One of the most aggressive people we've seen. Yeah, the tool we use, the stock market index itself, say the S&P 500 has a risk score of maybe 78. You know, obviously, your checking account's a 1, and like the bond market might be a 28. So most of, most of our clients are going to be somewhere between 28 and 78 in most cases, but this guy comes in in the 80s, and we're like, wow, that's really aggressive. And here he is telling me that he's conservative. And we question him on that and say, hey, what are you talking about? This You're an 85 from our numbering perspective. And he says, well, I just invest in blue chip stocks. And those are giant companies. They're not going to go out of business. And from my perspective, says the client, that's very conservative. Because those businesses are solid in yeah. the long run. So he's got a long run outlook. And that goes to his risk tolerance. He's thinking so long-term that the short-term doesn't really matter, and that's why he's, he can handle the short-term volatility. Whereas what we're looking at is, hey, what's your tolerance for that short-term stuff? Because that's where, that's where people get in trouble. So it, it, and the reason we say that is because when things are mismatched, that's when big mistakes can happen. So for what, what, what we mean by that is if your portfolio doesn't match your risk capacity, then you're going to fail at meeting your goals. If your portfolio doesn't match your risk tolerance, then what's going to happen there is you might be psychologically affected enough that you make a big mistake. So for example, if your portfolio is not aggressive enough to match your preferences, then you may be likely to buy high and get aggressive because what's going to happen? Your portfolio is too conservative. There's a great performance in the stock market, for example, and you're not keeping up. And your tolerance is very high. And you look and go, ah, oh, you know, 2019, man, the market went up 30%. I'm only up 20% or 10% or whatever it was. Your, your portfolio is more conservative than the overall market. And you think, I'd like to kind of get some of that 30% return. So January of 2020, what, do you, that, what does that person do? They buy in at a high. A month and a half later, COVID hits. (laughs) And the stock market drops 35% in three weeks. That's, That's a sign of a mismatch. But likewise, the other thing could happen as well. You could have a situation where your portfolio is more aggressive than you can actually tolerate, but you haven't experienced anything bad yet because you've been lucky. You've had uh, maybe even, I mean, some people had almost a decade of upward returns that have been fantastic with very relatively low volatility. They haven't had a real serious, serious bear market. And some of those people, too aggressive. Maybe they're, they're happy they had great returns, but then COVID hits, for example, in March of 2020. And the market, the Dow Jones Industrial Average, for example, goes from, say, 29,500. It drops down to 18,200 by the third week of March. If those people's portfolio was more aggressive than their tolerance, they could panic. This is a mistake that could happen. They could panic and sell out at a low. And here we are in October and we've seen, I mean, it's short term, but nonetheless, there was a pretty good snap recovery off of that low. And they, they, those people who sold low, they kind of missed it. And now they're kicking themselves over that. So the, the moral of the story is you want to make sure your portfolio matches your risk capacity for meeting your goals and your risk tolerance so that you don't make bad psychological, bad emotional decisions in, at, at market extremes. And we've had some examples of this over our careers. We've had a situation where, you know, here's an example where, Somebody was very aggressive, but a bear market in the first few years of their retirement could damage their probability of success. We had the, in a good way, I guess, we were a recipient of a client relationship who fired their advisor in the mid-2000s. As it turns out, this person had put them into a hyper-aggressive portfolio back in 1999 near the top of the dot-com bubble that we talked about in previous episode. And 
Obviously, they got smacked hard in 2000, 2001, 2002, and then they got conservative. So here these people are in their 60s, and uh, no bueno. <laughs> Not good at all. So it it really hurt them. They, they, they were down significantly. Fortunately, they started with a huge number. They started with like something like a $5 million portfolio. But by the time I met them and they hired us, they were around half that. Here's another example very similar to that. A new client in 2014 came on board. They told us about their past, and they were invested aggressively in the mid-2000. Come 2008, with the Great Recession, their accounts started going down, going down, and husband said, whoa, this is way too much. I can't tolerate this. And around October of 2008, which is pretty close to the bottom of that Great Recession, he goes conservative and they pull out of all their equities, get very, very conservative. They miss the 2009-2010 recovery. And the following decade of recovery. And that he has carried that with him for these last 10 years as we've been trying to work with him and He's been anchored to that 2007 number. When you have those kind of mistakes happen, they never, it, the regret never leaves you. It's really hard to get past that. That's why it's so critical to be disciplined on the front end and make sure that your portfolio matches you. It needs to match you and it needs to match your spouse if you're married and you. And it needs to also give you the high probability of meeting your goals. It doesn't do you any good, for example, if you're very comfortable with your portfolio, but it fails to meet your financial goal in the long run. So another example is, let's say you have 100% of your money in certificates of deposit at the bank. The good thing about those is they're FDIC insured. You can't lose. I mean, it's a it's a great deal, but the rates of return are so low. that Does that mean you're going to absolutely fail if you have all your money in CDs? Not necessarily if you're frugal enough, but if you're Goals require some level of a long-term return on those assets. Um, at least at today's interest rates in 2020, they're record lows of all time. You're probably going to fail in that plan, or you're going to have to dial your plan back, assuming a 0% return, keeping in mind that inflation's still more than zero. So you're behind from the day, from the get-go. And some people can get away with that if they have a pension, social security, and they've got plenty of income and they're living beneath their means, they could be fine. But if you are too conservative, then you have a failure in your risk capacity. Um, An example to bring up just from this week in regards to that, we have a retired client. They're going to be okay if their portfolio can get them a long-term rate of return of 3%. Yet half of their money is at this moment currently sitting in their checking account. You can't get 3% in your checking account in this current environment in 2020. Yeah. In this situation, we do analysis of risk capacity and we find that the required return for them to meet their financial goals is going to be 3%, which is actually quite low relatively over long periods of time. That's probably doable given their, their, their potential investment mix. But like you say, it, they also need the asset that's in the bank. And they, these people have six digits just sitting in a savings account earning 0.0 something. They need that money to earn three. Otherwise, now, will they definitively run out of money? There's a possibility they could that's higher than what they might be comfortable with. There might be a 30 40% chance that they run out of money if that, that money's not earning 3%. They've got to get that. Now, does that mean we think we're only going to earn 3%? Well, gosh, you know, everybody hopes they do better, right? But you need it, we don't know what returns are going to be. We live in the world of probability rather than prediction. Um, but I can tell you this, at, at low interest rates, it's harder to have a guaranteed idea of what those returns might be. So what you have to do is you have to focus on risk and you have to give yourself a shot at earning that 3%. And there's going to be a bell curve of outcomes over that person's life expectancy. But you need to make sure your assets match the goal and you need to make sure the assets match you. And we have example after example after example of the risk not matching those those three items just not matching with the client and the do-it-yourselfers you just got to be 
really diligent in trying to figure out what that risk number is. And nobody does that. Nobody that I've seen short of doing a very simplistic questionnaire on a website. And those exist. You can go on online yourself and find you and just type in in, a, in an internet search um, free risk tolerance questionnaire and you'll get hundreds of them. They're, they're available. And many of them are those subjective ones that aren't that precise. Now, their advisors typically have some really precise tools. They cost money for the advisors to have, have access. They cost money for these advisors to have access to those tools, but they're more precise. And the thing of it is, if you're talking about your life savings, if you're talking about major, major financial goals, precision actually is worth it. Um, if you can get access to that kind of analysis, it's very, very important. There's lots of tools out there that advisors use. We use one that's our favorite, and we're hoping to have them on our podcast at some point. But if you're, you know, the, the bottom line is the average person isn't even thinking about this issue. They're looking at returns. Why are they looking at returns? They're looking at returns because the information is readily available and it's easy to understand. The world of probability gets into statistics and that's like everybody's least favorite class if they had to take it in school. It's really frustratingly difficult for some people to get their mind around statistics and probability and that kind of thing. But it doesn't matter whether you like it or not. It's the world we live in. You ha we live in the world of probability when you're talking about investing. And if you understand volatility and probability of volatility and you understand how that affects the likelihood of you reaching your goals, you're going to be better off than if you're just wandering blind and wondering, and you're, you're blaming people for what happened or you're saying you feel like the world's chaotic and you don't know how to really make this work. Investing is not necessarily chaotic. It can be very, very scientific, comma, over the long term. You got to think in terms of 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, and have faith that that math works. You can't make a decision about whether something is working or not over the first six months or 12 months or even 18 months. It's too short a period of time to evaluate an investment portfolio. The world of investments is a slow moving thing. It's not a fast moving thing. It's, it's chaotic in the short term. And then the long term, it's just like this um, very smoothing type of thing over long periods of time. Speaking of time, the second thing we need to look at is your time frame. If you're dealing with risk capacity, you probably already dealt with this, but this is just a, a rehash of things we've, we've repeated in previous episodes. When you're building your investment portfolio, there's different jobs and there's different tools for those different jobs. If your goal is short term, now I'll call short term anything less than three, three years or less, the investments that go into your portfolio should probably favor stability and safety and prioritize those things instead of prioritizing return. I see people asking questions, hey, I'm going to buy a house in 18 months. How should I invest? And a bunch of amateur investors are jumping in on their, on their little internet chat saying, oh, just put it all in XYZ stock or just buy the whole stock market fund. It's doing great. And it's a very simplistic, very amateur way of looking at things, not recognizing what we talked about before. There's risk in those things. If you're investing in stocks for the short run, there's a high probability, higher than you may be comfortable with, that it goes down in value and you actually miss meeting that financial goal. And maybe you're comfortable with that. You're like, oh, I'm going to like to buy a house in 18 months. But you know what? If the bunny's cut in half, maybe I'll wait another 18 months until it comes back. Some people are like that. But if you can't tolerate watching your money get cut in half over an 18-month period, maybe you should focus on things like CDs, short-term bonds, ETFs that do those kind of things, savings accounts, money markets, things that are more stable, more short-term oriented for a short-term goal. Likewise, if you have a long-term goal that's maybe more than 10 years, let's say, then you can start favoring potential return over that short-term stability. You can say, hey, it's long-term. I don't worry about the short-term ups and downs. What types of investments might you use there? Well, you're probably going to be using longer-term bonds, maybe some high, higher-yielding bonds and, and some stocks or some stock funds or index funds or whatever kind of, you know, all these, th all these investments, when you say stocks and we say bonds, we're not necessarily saying individual stocks or individual bonds. When you hear people talk about stocks, that's either directly in the stocks or indirectly through mutual funds, index funds, exchange-traded funds. It doesn't really matter. It's allocation to the category of stocks is what when, when you hear people talking about that 
But those are more long-term assets and they should be used for longer-term goals. And if you have something in between three to 10 years, what are you going to do? Pretty much what, what people would expect. You'd probably do a mixture of those things. And again, the way we do it, we go back to the risk of the portfolio. How much? For, where's the variability over a five-year period of time? Where do we make sure that the, the risk gives the high likelihood of meeting that goal that's a five-year goal or a seven-year goal instead of a 10-year goal or longer? It all circles back down to risk. And it's just important that you want to make sure that the holdings you have in your investment portfolio align with your goals and your risk tolerance. And that gets back to the realism of your goal. For example, you're putting $1,000 into an account. You say, hey, in two years, I want to use that $1,000 to buy me a $10,000 motorcycle. Well, a short-term goal requires a short-term tool, a money market account, a CD. No CD or money market account right now is going to turn $1,000 into $10,000 in the next year then your goal is just your goal's way a little not too realistic. Ambitious. Yeah, and correct. Correct. Because there's never been an investment that reliably could ten times your money inside of a year. You see people doing that. You see people asking questions uh, you know, out there saying, hey, I've got a thousand dollars, like you said, and I, you know, or hey, I, it's almost like saying, hey, I want to retire when I'm twenty seven, I'm twenty six and a half. How do I do how do I get started? The odds are not with you if that if that's your situation. And I'm exaggerating only slightly <laughs> but that's really the case. So you figured out your timeline. You know what your goals are. You figured out what the capacity you need for risk to meet those goals. You have an idea of how much variability of return you can, you can tolerate. And you know generally what kind of, how much risk of a portfolio you're aiming for. So how do you then engineer a portfolio that will deliver that with a high probability of success? You don't want something that's going to send you a hap- an unhappy surprise out of the clear blue sky. You, you think you're getting uh, a certain amount of risk. And we've seen this happen from time to time with certain fund managers where you have an investment fund that has a certain level of risk. And all of a sudden, out of the clear blue sky, they have a completely bad return that's way off the radar of what was expected. That's an unhappy surprise. So how do we then build a portfolio? If you're, if or how does one then who's doing it themselves build a portfolio from scratch, knowing those things about what we're trying to aim at? Vanguard, their study called Advisor Alpha. They one of the key things they focused in on in terms of best practices. They call it asset allocation and broad diversification. This may run counter to some people's thinking. I know there's writers out there that talk about how. Great wealth has always come from concentration. Uh, Some of the large, wealthiest people in America, they had all their eggs in one basket in their own business, for example. And that's true. What they don't talk about is the odds. For every Bill Gates, for every Jeffrey Bezos out there, there's thousands and thousands and thousands of people who lost everything and they're trying to get their business up and running. The 98% of businesses don't make it past five years. So for most of us, If you want a high probability of success, you probably don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. But let's let's circle back here. What's asset allocation? A lot of problems we see online is where people don't understand the vocabulary. They don't understand the basics. We had did a whole we did a whole episode on simplified vocabulary for investors. Uh, I think it was episode two of this podcast. But asset allocation is really important to understand what that really means. It's not that complicated, but it basically refers to the percentages that you've invested in various asset categories like stocks, bonds, cash investments, real estate, that kind of thing. Big, broad categories. That's the, what's one way to look at it. You could also say asset allocation is can be broken up. You could say stocks can be broken up in big, medium, small, value, growth, and blend, domestic and foreign, that kind of thing. You can slice and dice that all you want, but it's basically stocks, bonds, cash, real estate, and other things. Big, broad categories. What's your blend? That should align, again, with your financial situation, your risk tolerance, and your time horizon. So why is asset allocation important? Well, multiple studies over multiple decades have showed that over 90% of the variability of, those re- of your returns comes from the blend of your investment categories. 
doesn't say 90%. You'll see it sometimes out there where it'll say 90% of your return comes from your asset allocation. That's not true. That's not accurate mathematically. But what is true is that the variability, the risk we were talking about that's so critical, the distribution and variability of those returns, 90% comes from your asset allocation. So what's that mean to, to us? I think you should spend about 90% of your energy focusing on that. If 90% of the variability comes from that, maybe you ought to pay a lot of attention to your mix of stocks, bonds, and cash and things. Instead of spending 90% of your time picking individual stocks and individual bonds, hoping you're going to hit the grand slam homer. The probabilities are not with you. It can happen. But I said this before earlier in the week online. Possible is not the same thing as probable. You're not going to get a high probability of success running around chasing your tail trying to find that that grand slam homer. It's unlikely. Asset allocation is the most important determinant of, of risk in a portfolio. So there's multiple studies over decades that have confirmed this. Rather than go into all of them in detail and rattle off a bunch of professors' names and academics' names, you can look them up. There's plenty of research on this. People ask us, why have any bonds in a portfolio? We're talking about asset allocation here. And if we have a long-term goal, long-term retirement, and long uh, stocks are the best long-term performer historically, why have any bonds or cash in a portfolio? Why deal with this asset allocation? Well, really, we talked about it a little bit earlier. Is that is that if you have a hundred percent of your your money in stocks, say for example. Hey, if you're comfortable with it, if you're comfortable with things that can go down significantly in a short period of time, that may be absolutely fine for you, provided that the probabilities still exist that, that the portfolio can reach your goal. So let's use your retirement example as, uh, as a case study here. So in tough times, for example, U.S. Treasuries can do well when stocks are doing poorly. They tend to not correlate with each other at all. And usually what you'll see happen is, is that when money flows out of the stock market as people panic and sell, oftentimes that money flows right into things like U.S. Treasuries that tend to do very well. So for example, in 2008, we saw that, that whole global financial crisis that actually had, it started in the end of 2007 and worked its way all the way through to like March of 2009. So like 15, 16 months or so. In that period, the stock market index dropped a little over 50%, lost over half its value. But U.S. Treasuries, the long-term U.S. Treasuries anyway, actually rose more than 20% during that same period. So why, why have bonds in a portfolio? Honestly, it's the stability factor. For people who have a lower risk tolerance, even a middle risk tolerance, even though it might provide them with a lower long-term return than a 100% stock portfolio, it minimizes the likelihood that they're going to make a bad mistake. Like our friend who, quote, got conservative in 2008. His portfolio dropped significantly enough where he threw in the towel and said, I've had enough. And he got conservative at the bottom. It ruined his potential for a long-term awesome return. If you're, we'll say it again, if your portfolio doesn't match your risk tolerance and your risk tolerance has not been precisely and accurately measured, the odds increase that you're going to make a bad mistake behaviorally. You're going to make a bad decision at a bad time. And the thing about bonds is that they don't move in the same, they don't move generally, don't move in lockstep with the stock market. They kind of zig when the stocks zag. Exactly. Here's another thing about that client who got out in 2008. This is with many of us. It's worth considering and worth pointing out. There's a lot of noise out there. You've got media. You've got headlines. You've got emotions. As we were all going through that 2008 crisis, it was fearful and emotional. And down by the end, that guy got out. And then once he was out, he didn't know when to get back in and he missed out on that recovery. What you can do to address that is you can have a disciplined investment policy statement. Have a written policy, a written document where you're actually writing down how you're going to react in certain situations. And, and you've got to put that plan in place when you're calm, 
when you're thinking this through, when you're understanding, you're working with your logic side of your brain because there's that tendency out there when things are doing really, really great or when things are doing really, really bad in the short run, there's hype, there's news, there's this tendency to feel like, I just feel like I need to do something. This is happening. Don't I need to do something? Because we're all like hardwired for action. And the thing of it is, is like if you have that disciplined investment policy that's been put in place already, you know it's has it's well thought out. You know it's aligned with your goals. You know it's aligned with your risk tolerance. And you know your portfolio matches both. If you have that in place, there's a higher probability that you can look at the situation and go, have I done everything correct? Yes. Then I don't have to do a thing. Let the system run its thing. Let the system do what it's designed to do. Don't give in to greed. Don't give in to fear. Follow the plan. In Vanguard study on Advisor Alpha, they're talk, they were trying to quantify you know, how much value can professional advice get, lead and, and offer to investors. In their studies, the number one biggest one in terms of the most value add was something they called behavioral coaching. And in their studies, they found that investors that had behavioral coaching or that followed, that appeared to have had behavioral coaching, outperformed the other people who did not by one and a half percent per year. Now, that's more than a lot of advisors charge per year. It's just that one little thing. And so when you dig into what behavioral coaching is, they talk about it at, at, at various levels. But here's the funny thing. It basically boils down to stick with your system. The people that were jumping around, reacting to short-term noise and short-term headlines are the ones that blew up their performance because they just felt like they had to do something. And that's the silly little thing, right? It's like if you would just sit still, you'd be better off. And it, and it really is a huge, huge value there. And the behavioral coaching for us are those phone calls that we get time and time again from many, many people. I'm fearful. They pick up the phone and say, hey, I'm fearful. Shouldn't we do something? Nope. System's on, on track. Yeah. It's Let your talking system do people its thing. off of the ledge, so to speak. Likewise, we have people call up and say, hey, such and such is doing really hot. It's been doing really well. Or worse, they say this. It's doing really well. Shouldn't I buy some XYZ, you know, on the side? Probably not. Because by the time you're excited about it, it's probably well into its trend. The time to buy, for example, the time to buy Apple stock was five years ago when the price earnings ratio was in the single digits or low double digits. And now it's 35, 40 times earnings. Does it mean it's not a great company? Absolutely not. It's a fantastic, amazingly stable company with cash coming out their eyeballs. It's an amazing business. But even they are saying things like, hey, uh, I mean, this is 20, this is October 2020, at the end of October when we're recording this. And recently up Apple's people came out and said, Hey, listen, we only think our earnings are going to grow like 5% a year for the next few years. Five. But the price of the stock implies that they're going to be growing at uh, well into the double digit per year percentage growth. And they're saying, Hey, it's more like 5% a year. So either they're stacking the deck and they're sandbagging, or maybe the stock maybe could, could uh, fare to have a better price down the line sometime. But here's the other thing that, that, that's been found in studies, and, and Vanguard did this research. As we're talking about asset allocation, there's a trend that we've seen in the last 15, 20 years towards really slicing and dicing it and adding new categories in. There are these odd, strange, esoteric categories like hedge funds and private equity and um, just just long short funds and this and that funds and just these these complicated high cost investment categories that just make everything and the, the the reasoning behind that is that there was some really good performance published by some very large foundations portfolios so you have these huge organizations like pension funds or the endowment funds at universities where they have these big piles of money that they manage for whatever their for whatever purposes that like say Yale University had and Yale came out a number of years ago and said hey um, a significant amount of our money is not even in stocks bonds and cash it's in other things you know it's in commodities timberland 
farmland, things that are illiquid, things you can't buy and sell every day, but they have an infinite time horizon. They, they're investing for 50, 100 years sometimes in some of these large foundations. But there's, there was this immediate reaction because their performance was quite good for a number of years. They had all these different categories that were other than stocks and bonds. And the regular investment world tried to start to pivot and copycat some of that because what are they doing? They're saying, hey, well, look at the performance they got over there. I mean, the professionals are, you know, the, the, the industry as a whole is, is full of a bunch of people that also like to chase returns, just like the beginners that we see on Facebook. And here, here, here come these professionals and even companies that are created around this. Hey, Yale's the, the gold standard in how you invest money now. And, you know, no offense to Yale University, they're a, great, they're, they're a fine institution, but people were trying to copycat them. And they're coming to us as advisors saying, hey, you ought to think about these other asset categories and here's how this is going to lower your risk of your clients portfolios and here's how it's going to improve their long-term returns over time and the fact of the matter is you know Vanguard did a study on all this and what they found is, is that if you took a simple portfolio with two investments 60% stock market 40% bond market index funds 60-40 model they analyzed the performance and the volatility of that against various endowments and foundation returns that have been published. And you know what they found? That portfolio, that simple portfolio was very, very effective. It actually outperformed the vast majority of most foundations and endowments funds. And these endowments, they have access to the best advisors. They have, they have access to the most complicated investment things out there. They can invest in things that, are, that most of us can't get access to. And with all that complexity and all those resources, they still fared not that much better than a simple stock bond portfolio. And the lesson here is when you're looking at your asset allocation, you don't need to make it overly complicated. One of our principles is simple and effective. And coincidentally, the research shows that simple can be effective. So that's asset allocation. You, you don't need complexity. You don't need excitement necessarily, but you can have something that's actually relatively boring and still is effective over the long run. That's asset allocation. But the other thing to talk about is broad diversification. Why own only a few when you can own a lot? Why only own five stocks in your portfolio when you can own a hundred, a thousand? Well, some people would say, hey, if I own a few, then I'll get better returns because like we said earlier in the podcast, uh, most of the wealthy people in the world got wealthy through concentrating their assets. Why? Why would they... They, those people would say, why, why would I even want to own hundreds or thousands of securities instead of a few? A recent study has, gone, uh, has been done, and they've gone back to 1926, and they've evaluated the entire stock market and all of the stocks from 1926. And they found that only 4% of stocks have provided most of the historical gains in the stock market. 4% of the stocks have provided most of the performance of the stock market. So what you're saying is like if somebody goes out and picks a stock, one stock, at least historically speaking, it's like a 96% chance that it doesn't do that great at all. You know, and, and we were looking, we were talking about this, but this, this study, I mean, you can, you can, you can Google this. You just look up on, uh, it's on seekingalpha.com. That's seekingalpha.com. And, and the article you're looking for is titled, Do Stocks Beat T-Bills? It's a fascinating article, but what they found in their research, and I'm, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, is that those other 96% of the stocks basically got the same returns as one-month treasury bills. 4% of the stocks. So there are 25, 26,000 stocks during that study, if I recall. And there were like 1,000 of them that were responsible historically over the last 100 years or so, 95 years, that we're responsible for all the gains in the stock market index. And I know what people are thinking. They're like, well, just own those 4%. <laughs> sure. It's, if, 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 right. And, and the, the thing is like, uh, this is why the professionals don't generally recommend that you pick the individual stocks. Um, and certainly not that you, that you concentrate your holdings in a handful. Um, I, I mean, I see questions on, on Facebook sometimes and uh, they'll say, Hey, should I put my, all my money in one stock or should I buy five? And the answer said, you should probably own five 
ETFs of different categories and different asset classes because that's going to probably increase your odds of success over over the long run. Um, but the truth of the matter is, is like, man, it's about consistency if you're talking about real serious money. We have plenty of clients who own individual securities and they have done well over these last decades. Yeah, we've got clients that have had... Uh, uh, you know, bank stocks that now it's JP Morgan, but maybe it was like five mergers ago, they owned another stock that got gobbled up and then that got gobbled up and that got gobbled up as the, in the nineties, all the banks were buying each other and it's done extremely well for them over, over a couple of decades. And that's been a great example. We've got clients that have um, worked for Google and they've obviously performed extremely well because that was, they had the employee stock. Um, we've got clients that have had, had done well with Apple, all the usual suspects. I mean, if you have some of the stocks that have done well, but by the same token, we've had some disaster stories. We've talked about some of those disasters on, on this podcast. There have been issues with tech stocks back in the dot-com bubble where people over-concentrated in their employee employer stock and it, it got crushed by over 90%. I mean, it, it, it hurts marriages. It actually can trigger stress that can actually lead to other health problems. We've seen that happen over the last 25 years. It, it's a real thing. And by the same token, you can have something, an individual stock that had been amazingly great for a long time and then just tanks for a while and does horrible. And we've seen that with, like we're in the Chicagoland area, so we've seen that with Motorola. It was a, a darling of the 70s and 80s, and in the 90s it kind of stagnated and then just kind of fell apart. Uh, we saw, we've seen this recently with Walgreen. The Walgreen stock was a darling for a very, very long time. Great performing company, very big growth company, and really the stock hasn't performed that well. We've seen it with General Electric. We've talked about GE several times in the podcast. It used to be called it was so diversified that they their business was so diversified they were practically like buying an index fund or, or a mutual fund. This stock's down significantly um, you know, from 20 years ago. The reason you broadly diversify is to get that consistency that you're going to reach your goal. I mean, again, we're talking, like we said, this isn't a trading account. This isn't for people playing games for their entertainment purposes. This isn't for the account that's a replacement for going to the casinos because you've been on lockdown from COVID. We're talking about saving to pay for your life after you stop working. Serious, serious stuff where you cannot fail. And if you cannot take the risk of failure to meet that goal, even if you're in your, your younger years, yeah, you can afford some variability, but you should still stay broadly diversified because time keeps ticking along. And if you have failure after failure after failure, if you're wrong, then you're having to really play catch up when you're 40. And that's no fun. And we've seen people that have had to do that. We've seen people that have been in their 50s trying to catch up. And it's a sad state of affairs when you have to look somebody in the eye and say, hey, sorry, that lifestyle you thought you were going to have in your 60s and 70s, yeah, you're going to have to back that off a lot. Sometimes even to the point where you don't even get to choose where you live anymore because of the cost of living. This is serious stuff. You need to pay attention to risk. You need to pay attention to asset allocation. And if you're going to be in categories, the core of your portfolio in our humble opinion, is that it needs to be broadly diversified. And it's not our opinion even. This is recognized, highly successful best practices recognized throughout the financial investment profession. And it, that broad diversification doesn't fall just to stocks. That's 100%. Bonds, bonds as well. And real estate. With bonds specifically, you have default risk. If you own one bond with ABC company, that company could go out of business and you might not get your money back if you put all your eggs in that one basket. But if you own a broad diversification of 100 bonds, 1,000 bonds, well, now your probability of success improves. Yeah, and it doesn't matter which category. Stocks, bonds, commodities, real estate, Real estate's one where people sometimes get hit because they don't realize, I mean, you're getting that great benefit of having the leverage of having a mortgage. If you have, say, rental property, that mortgage provides you with leverage and you can stand to make a great return, but it doesn't guarantee it. If you owned a bunch of apartments in an urban area and everybody's starting to move to the suburbs, for example, you could run into a risk there where you've got an occupancy problem. Now you've got a mortgage, but you don't have a tenant. 
there's risk everywhere, whether you really see it or not. Somebody who's detached, somebody, a third party looking in can go, hey, what about the risk over here? Have you thought about that? Are you truly diversified? If you want real estate exposure to the asset class, I mean, yeah, you can't get a mortgage for and borrow 80% of what you invest, but you can invest in real estate. You can own hundreds of properties all at once. Diversification doesn't necessarily give you that highest, highest, highest return. That's not what diversification is about. It's about giving you a consistency of the experience over time. It allows you to engineer the risk of your portfolio. And that's what we were talking about before. As far as returns go, nobody can predict the long-term returns. The markets are going to do what the markets are going to do. And that's where returns come from. You're going to get your returns from the market. You don't get your returns from your advisor. You don't get your returns from your own genius. Typically, your returns typically will come from the markets and from whatever the interest rates are on the things you buy if they're not if you're not in stocks. But it's about consistency of the experience so that you can look yourself in the mirror and say, I have a high probability of reaching my important financial goals. Next thing that you need to focus on. So you figured out, okay, I'm going to be diversified. I know what my asset allocation is. I know my risk tolerance. And now I'm all the way there. And now I'm at the point where I'm down to, I know I want to have exposure to a specific category. I'm going to buy a Uh, For example, I'm going to have exposure to large U.S. stock market is going to be a chunk of my portfolio. That's going to be a certain percentage of my portfolio. Now, which investments should I choose to put in there? How do I think about that? One of the things that is a recognized easy controllable is just looking at the expenses of the fund that you're considering. The, the reason we say that is because if you have a, a, a fund, for example, that invests in large U.S. stocks, if they have a high expense ratio, and you can look this up, what's the expense ratio of a fund? Um, if it's high, that means that the management team of that fund has to get that level of performance before you, the shareholder, even starts to earn a dime. So high expenses are a bit of a hurdle that the management team has to overcome before you begin to start making money. So obviously, if you're a shareholder in that fund, you want that hurdle to be as low as possible. You want to get you want that management team to get to the point where you're making money as fast as possible each year. So the lower the expense ratio, the sooner you're in a place where you're making the money on that fund. And you know, generally, we've seen costs fall over time on things like index funds or index ETFs, the exchange traded funds that are out there. And, and we prefer, you know, in our current portfolios that, that we prefer, we tend to lean more towards the exchange traded funds. They're very, very cheap. They're transparent. We've talked about that on other podcasts. But what Vanguard showed, and this is an older study, they said that, you, that investors could save anywhere from a quarter of a percent a year to a third of a percent a year simply by focusing on lower cost holdings. And since that study came out, Costs have dropped again another 20 basis points or 0.2% in the expenses. So we're seeing expenses drop and just focusing on those low costs is kind of a key thing. Um, you know, historically speaking, you, we used to have a lot of assets, you know, in the 90s, we'd use a lot of actively managed mutual funds. You know, since then, research has shown that that's not necessarily the highest bang for your buck to hire somebody to pick stocks. Their, their odds of picking stocks successfully are barely above 50-50, and you're paying them oftentimes one whole percent per year on their expenses. So what's the best use of your expense dollar? In our opinion, we'd say focus on controllables. And one of the easiest controllables is just cut the expenses. So just look for low-cost holdings if you can. You want to err in that. Occasionally, you'll see something that might add some value that's a little bit more expensive. And, and to be fair, some of the foreign markets, just be, just realize they're going to be more expensive if you have access to foreign assets than if you're in domestic U.S. things. So some, th- some categories are cheaper than, other, than others. That's okay. Just look for the cheapest thing you can find in the category. Just recognize you don't want to necessarily avoid an entire category simply because of expense. Just get the cheapest thing you can find within the category that matters for your portfolio. And now that you have your portfolio of investments and you're putting everything together, what you want to do is you want to rebalance regularly. And what's rebalance? Rebalancing is, let's take a look at your asset allocation. Let's go back a little bit here. So your stock bond cash mix. Yes. You have a simplified, you have a 60% stocks, 40% bonds. That's your mixture. And you set it up 
and it runs and it's invested over time you'll find that say three five years from now you you look back at your portfolio you'll find that those different components have performed have given you different results over that period of time yeah generally stocks are going to do better than cash for example and you might start with that 60 40 blend you may find in three years that you are now 70 percent stocks 30 percent bonds that mixture is changing what rebalancing is is on a systematic on a regular basis you take a look at your portfolio and you sell what has done well and you buy what has not done as well if you have in a as an example here that 60 percent stock 40 percent bonds over time it goes to 70 30 you sell that 10 percent growth of your stocks and you buy that back into your bonds to recalibrate it's kind of like tuning up retuning a piano so to speak to get it back to that 60 40 level that way you're really controlling the risk of your portfolio over time and really rebalancing the research has shown that you know does that really increase and improve your returns and the research has shown it really doesn't what it does do though is it does actually keep the risk under control it keeps that volatility of the portfolio right in line again circling back to the first thing we talked about your risk tolerance and when you keep it in line with your risk tolerance you're reducing the chance that you're going to blow up your own plan by acting on fear or greed 100 now some people will say and there there is some research that says hey well let's compare performance because in our heart of hearts that what everybody really wants is a better return i mean everybody does i want a better return you want a better return and ideally we'd like that the the thing we forget to think about uh, again and again and again we're kind of you know and it sounds may seem like we're beating a dead horse but in our experience risk 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 is so critically important because that's where the decisions get made is when the risk reveals itself and if we're all only focused on returns and we're ignoring risk, we're going to make mistakes. We've seen it over and over again. I know it sounds like we're a broken record. Too bad. This is that important. It's that important to focus on risk. It's critical. And the, now now some studies will say, hey, what, what, what if you just let it drift, so to speak? So you started with your 60-40 portfolio and now it's out to a 70-30. What would happen over a 30-year period if you just let it go? I mean, and what the research showed is, indeed, you got better returns. And you know what else you had? You had more volatility along the way, inc ever increasing volatility along the way. Now, in a real world example, let's think this through. Over a long period of time, 20 years, 30 years, at, for a lot of people, if you're 30, 20, 30 years, that gets you to retirement. But as you're approaching retirement, uh, I can tell you the math starts to actually matter. The volatility starts to matter. And you don't necessarily want... And I can assure you, your spouse, if one of you is really excited about risk, you're more than likely your spouse is not. Ever increasing volatility is not something that's very attractive as you're approaching retirement. It's even worse if you're in retirement and pulling money out of that portfolio on a systematic basis. All the value add that comes from systematic investing becomes a risk as you're systematically withdrawing from the portfolio. So managing risk is going to be critical and rebalancing helps do that. But some people say, hey, what if you drifted? Yeah, you get better return, but you have more risk and it's an ever increasing risk. And what Vanguard did is they said, you know, if, if you really just want the long-term return of letting it go and letting it drift, instead of starting with that 60-40 portfolio, somebody, they said, well, what if you started off with 80% stocks and 20% bonds? And that's your starting point, but you rebalanced. And in their research, what they showed is if you just moved up on the where your starting line was, because you want more return, just start move up into more aggressive portfolio, but still rebalance. And what they found is it got the same or better return as the drift portfolio, but it did it with less risk. Less volatility. Less volatility along the way. But if you're going to rebalance, I went through this in my education for Ignatian that I hold. This is in 2008 and rebalancing was a, a you know, tax aware investing and rebalancing was a, a big part of that curriculum. The question that's common is, well, how often should I rebalance? Should I rebalance 
daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, semi-annually, annually. You know, how often should I do this rebalancing project? And there's varying opinions on that. The math varies depending on the time frame and history that you're looking at. Sometimes it helps. Sometimes it doesn't help if you do it more often or less often. The most important thing is that you're just systematic about it. And if you can automate the process, that's great. You know, the hard and the reason, you, another reason you want to automate is because sometimes rebalancing, if you're, if your rebalancing process it involves a conversation where you go, hmm, I wonder if I should rebalance today. Or if you're sitting down with your advisor and your advisor says, I think you ought to rebalance. What do you think? Well, we can tell you what you're going to think because here's what you're going to do. You're going to look and see, okay, what does rebalancing entail? And just like Dan mentioned a few minutes ago, you know, let me get this straight. This thing that's doing so well, I'm actually going to sell some of it. But it's doing so well. Why would I? It's doing. Let your let your winners run is what you hear everywhere. Why would I do that? It's it's so. It doesn't make sense. Why would I sell what's doing well? And wait, you want me to buy this thing that's actually not done well, or not done as well? Are you mad? You got you crazy. This doesn't make any sense. What we can tell you is in the moment, if you have not systematically made the rebalancing a part of your investment policy, the odds are is you're not going to want to do it. And then what you're going to end up is that drift portfolio that ends up taking ever increasing levels of risk until finally something happens where you go, oh my gosh, that was way too much risk. I think I need to get out at, at the bottom because now it's it's too aggressive for me and I think I should get conservative now. And then you're just like that client we talked about in 2008 who misses the entire recovery and you blew up your whole financial plan because you didn't have the discipline to do what made sense along the way which is rebalancing. Being systematic allows you to really keep your emotions out, keep that fear out of the entire process. It's quite real. Decision fatigue is quite real. If you have a system in place, if you're the way you're going about and in your investing every day, every week, every month, you're looking at things and you've got a yellow pad off to the side and you're looking at your computer screen and you're trying to make a decision on what should I do now what should I do now? What should I do now? Every decision you make, you're always coming back to have to make another decision later. It's decision after decision. I'm going to get in. I'm going to get out. When do I get in? When do I get out? The guessing game. Yeah. You, you know? have a system in place. You have that disciplined, written investment policy statement that we talked about earlier. It's, it's a plan. It's in place. You have rebalancing. You're doing it regularly. You're doing it systematically where it's set up to be done all the time, monthly or quarterly. It's It, it makes everything easier. And uh, this is very different than, this is more important than a spreadsheet that tracks every bloody move in your portfolio. We see, we see people sometimes, they have this They've built this. They're very proud of this. They build this amazing Excel spreadsheet and it says, look, I'm tracking all my stuff or they have a ledger and they're every single month they're writing down. How did this investment do? How did this account do? And they know exactly what's happened in the past. They're, they're very diligent trackers of data. And as commendable as that is, it doesn't add value for the future. It doesn't change what's going to happen. It doesn't help them make better decisions because they're fo so focused on the historical data that the same psychological errors can come into place. Recency bias, focus on the news, uh, anchoring. You can focus in on something, one thing over another, make a bad decision, buying high, selling low. All those things can still happen if you're tracking, but if you have a written policy and procedure for how you're going to invest this portfolio. You know how much risk you're willing to take and it's measured precisely. You know how much you can you can align that portfolio's asset allocation to align precisely with the level of risk that you're willing to take and the goals that you have that you need to reach. And then you're rebalancing to keep your whole system is about I'm going to keep the system running as it was intended to run. That discipline over time leads to so much freedom later on. And the hardest thing is to understand investing is a decades-long game. It's not a how did I do the last six months. 
It's not a, hey, I'm going to try this strategy and see how it goes for the first year or two years or three years. That's not long enough. Do the homework up front to make sure that you're following best practices and then you don't need to worry about whether it's going to work over five or 10 or 25 years. The odds are going to be with you if you follow best practices. Now, gentlemen on, on Facebook, a uh, brilliant guy who runs his own uh, uh, highly complex, highly aggressive um, trading firm, I believe, in Connecticut, a research firm, something like that, um, you know, uh, MIT grad. I mean, he's just a phenomenally bright guy. He, he, he commented to me last week. He said, hey, best practices lead to average returns. The implication being, well, why would anyone want average returns? And the, the data shows that most people don't even get the average returns. Because they don't have a disciplined investment policy, because they're not tracking risk, they're making these psychological errors, they're doing all the things that Vanguard Advisor Alpha found to find that the people that don't have follow the best practices tend to do up to 3% worse per year in their returns than people that are following best practices. So this isn't about beating the market, it's about just being the best you can be. And it can be very, very effective just getting market returns, but you need to have a system in place. And that's, that's what this foundational investing is all about. So, you know, the one thing I'll say on rebalancing is, and we'll talk about this in another episode as we get into more advanced topics here is taxes. Obviously, if you're buying and selling Along the way, there's going to be tax consequences you need to be aware of. And there's ways of mitigating that tax cost, but that taxes are one of the big controllables when you're investing. And we're going to talk about that in a future episode, but just make sure, just to recap, number one, you need to precisely know how much risk you can tolerate, precisely as possible. Number two, you need to know how much risk you need to take in order to meet your financial goals. Remember, there is a, there is a trade-off between how much risk you're taking and the potential long-term return. There's no free lunch here. You don't get the maximum returns and have no risk. You're going to have volatility along the way if you're going to have a high long-term return. That's just, I guess that's just the, 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 the way the world works. You need to be aware of how long the time frames are. For long-term investments, you better be thinking long-term and not be wondering, hey, I wonder what the market's going to do on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday. It's irrelevant. It should be irrelevant. If you do this right, you shouldn't even, you don't even have to care about it. It's handled if you do this right. It's handled. You need to focus on asset allocation between stocks, bonds, cash, whatever, broadly. Have that figured out and have that figured out in a way that you know precisely that the risk of that portfolio is really well aligned with your tolerance and your goals. Now, is that easy to do by yourself online? No, it's going to require some homework. It's going to require some understanding of math and statistics and probability analysis. You're going to have to learn the same things that advisors learn in order to do it for you, but that's what it's going to take to do it right. Otherwise, you're a wandering generality. You're a leaf in the wind. Focus on low-cost holdings. That's a controllable. And just rebalance regularly. You do those things. That's the foundational homework. That's the answer to the frequently asked question. How do I get started? It's that stuff. That's what we have to do when we're doing it for people. And if you're going to follow best practices and do it yourself, guess what? Sorry to be the bearer of bad news. You have to do the same rigorous work for yourself that that, that an advisor would do as well. It's easy to pick a, a... to pick an index fund because they're all the same. An S&P 500 fund is an S&P and 500 fund for the most part. That's easy. But understanding all of this stuff, that's going to take a little bit of extra work. Just, just be aware. This is, this, is the, this is the actual answer. If you're going to build a foundational core portfolio of investments for yourself, you're going to have to address these issues. They need to be addressed. And if you're interviewing an advisor, they better be in, you know, we talked about episode seven, some of the common questions they need to focus on. If you're in questions that you need to have answered, if you're going to work with an advisor, there's some overlap between this episode and uh, I think it was episode seven, Dan, that we talked about that. Yeah. Seven was to ask the questions of advisors. So you you can go back and review that episode, but if you're building your own portfolio, 
risk, time, asset allocation, broad diversification, low cost holdings and rebalance regularly. Anything else you got, Dan? Simple and effective. Focus on controllables. Having a game plan, it can make it easier. It can really help you keep emotions in check and it can allow you to, many people don't like this stuff, this finance stuff. And if you have a good game plan, you can focus those energies on other things, on you know softball games, on coaching, on crushing your job, whatever, living life. And, and that goes to our other guideline: who, not how. You, you, if if these, if this level of rigorous analysis is beyond your desire or capability, there's people out there you can delegate it to. Go to findyourindependentadvisor.com and search for a, reg, a qualified registered investment advisor near you. That's a, that's a site hosted by Charles Schwab that has access to all the different people, independent advisors like, like us that do this. There's people that work with clients in all other, other states as well. So it doesn't have to necessarily, it may not, in, in this day and age, you may have, be comfortable, you may find that your best advisor is somebody that's virtual who's out of state. And they may be willing to work with you out of state. We have clients in all, all, all over the place, East Coast, West Coast, Florida, Arizona, you know, all over the place, California. The best practices don't change. Either you're going to have to do the work yourself or you're going to have to find somebody to help you do it. And so with that, I think that's all we have for today on the, on the basics of building an investment por- portfolio. Thank you so very much for listening. If, um, if you'd like to engage us more directly, we're available on social media at Fierce Fiduciary or just Google Fierce Fiduciary Podcast. We're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. We're on Twitter. Um, I'm on most social media as Brian C. Beasley. We have an investment group on Facebook called Investing and Financial Planning that you can join that group, and we have some learning curriculum and we'll have some educational posts and put up charts periodically of things like that. You can join a discussion there, or if you want to engage us, you can reach us at Athena Private Wealth. We do this for a living and we have our own investment advisory firm that does financial planning and investing with, uh, with our other partner, Tom Stesich, who's been on this podcast. Again, thank you so much for listening. Until next time. Cue the tiger.